Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our brief series with James Jordan on the topic of history. Do check out those links in the show notes, specifically the links to our blog, YouTube channel, and our social media handles, as we would love for you to engage with our content on those platforms. Right now on our YouTube channel, Alistair Roberts is in the midst of a series on the topic of technology and social media. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing a theology of history. Okay, this will be the latter half of the material I started to present yesterday afternoon on the question of what is history. And you'll remember that, well, this is not a terribly organized topic because what I'm trying to get us to do, you to do, is to think a somewhat different way about life and the world. And so we just kind of have to get into this one toe at a time, and then eventually the whole foot is maybe in there. But we started off by saying that there are two reasons why it's difficult for us to think about history. One is that God is constantly making things new and changing things in history, which means it is hard for us to wrap our minds around what is going on in history. It's in the nature of the case. And second of all, it's difficult for us to think about history is because we want to play God and be outside of history. We don't like the historical flux and change. We like abstract, timeless reason. And as a result, in every society, human knowledge and reflection moves toward philosophy and timeless, abstract categories of thought and away from thinking in terms of change. And that's particularly true when you get to the prophetic period of the Old Testament. Around the time that God raises up the prophets, you have arising in these other cultures all these timeless, anti-prophetic ways of looking at the world. Buddhism, Confucianism, Platonism. In each of these cultures, you have philosophers arise whose definition of the world is ultimately everything is timeless, static being. And there is no history to speak of. History is an illusion. So in the third period of Old Testament history, you have prophecy versus philosophy as the basic antagonism because the prophets are intimately historical. Then we reflected for a few minutes about the relationship of biblical history to world history. Remember, there are three possibilities here. One is that Bible history doesn't really happen at all. It's fable. It happens in Heilsgeschichte, sacred story. The second possibility is what we commonly have. Bible history happens in Sunday school, and world history happens in day school. And they both happen, but there's not much interaction between the two. And if there is, it's just interaction. And the third possibility, and the Christian possibility, is that Bible history happens at the core and center of world history. That God, in moving the Bible history, what we have there is God steering the human race by controlling the absolute center and core of the human race. You control the center, you control everything around it. And for that reason, Bible history is the absolute history, 
Bible chronology is the absolute chronology. And biblical history moves by covenants, times when God moves in a special way in history to interfere. And these times when God comes in history and interferes, he makes covenants and he dates those covenants. And that's an offense. It's an offense to say that God talks. It's more of an offense to say that he writes. And it's most of an offense to say that he dates the things that he writes. Covenants are dated just like your marriage covenant is. Then we reflected for a few minutes on what is the human race. The human race is God's daughter. It's Christ's sister who is going to grow up to be his bride. And that is what God is maneuvering in history. Second of all, we said that human beings are pieces of dirt. And we are connected to the world, and the world is connected, is related to God through us. When we eat food, we're eating pieces of dirt that have been transformed into food for us to eat. And so we are linked into everything. And that physical link that you have by the plants or machines that turn dirt into food, and then we eat it, that physical link is only an expression of a broader covenantal link. Everything that you like, everything that you care about, Everything that you engage in is part of you, and when you're transfigured at the end, all those things will be too, because we're connected to the world, and we're the priests of creation, the mediators between God and the world. And so God is transforming and growing the creation, but he's growing it through us. So history is the growth of God's daughter into a bride for his son, and that is what God is doing in history. He does it with each of us individually. But he's doing it with the race as a whole because God is three in one. Finally, we talked about how God directs history. And what God did was he closed down to a small group of people. And he maneuvered that history and changed those people over the course of 1,500 years into something new. Initially, after God saved those people out of Egypt, all they wanted to do was run off and worship other gods. And over the course of time, God took them through frustrating and difficult, painful experiences to where they stopped doing that. And so what they wanted to do was go out and build high places, and they wanted to worship Yahweh, but they wanted to use the rituals and the imagery of the pagans. And so they had a little statue of Yahweh, and then all of the angels like Baal and Venus and all the rest that were supposed to be in his court And they burned incense to them on high places, and God had to take them through a whole bunch of hard experiences to get them to stop. And when we get down to the Gospels, Jesus is not having to argue against them on those points anymore. Jesus doesn't have to say, I have this against you that you go out to the high places and burn incense. No, he doesn't have to say that. They have moved into a different kind of sin. People always find some new way to sin. The point is, those people in their collective social consciousness had been transformed out of 1,400 years of history. And then God starts grafting all the rest of the world into that history. The history culminates in Christ, but Christ is the true Israel, so Christ is all of that. And then God starts grafting all the nations of the world into that. So it's our history. And branches are broken out. The Israelis, their ancestors did not go through the Red Sea. Their ancestors came into existence in A.D. 70. Our ancestors went through the Red Sea because we're grafted into that history. 
which means that the maturation and development, the consciousness forming humanity changing processes or actions of God during that 1500 years are part of our history and part of our collective consciousness forming. And you get grafted into that. And ultimately, humanity is saved and all the world that's linked to us is saved and the wicked are raptured out. And we talked a little bit about Bible history. The Bible history is indeed illustrations of moral principles, but if that's all it is, it doesn't need to have happened. And then we said that Bible history is typology, but it's more than that. Bible history is also how God steers and changes human beings. And we have to have that dimension as well. We can't just study the Old Testament as illustrations. We can't just study it as typology. We have to study it in terms of what God was doing to make people change. And when we do that, we can learn wisdom in directing our own lives and in influencing our culture. And so fifth, we need to learn to think historically, and that is to think over long generations of time. God makes Abraham think in generations. And God wants us to think in terms of generations. You never see anything in the Bible that one man completes. Moses gets them out, but Joshua brings them in. Elijah starts it, but Elisha finishes it. Jesus starts it, but then he goes to heaven and the Holy Spirit and the disciples finish it. Where do you find anybody that finishes something he starts? Abraham starts it. And remember what the promise was, in you all nations will be blessed. That doesn't happen till Joseph, when all the world comes to be fed, four generations away. Now, we don't naturally think that way. We don't think in long terms. When we're small children, remember we talked about little kids, small child actually has many days within a day. As you get older, you start to perceive longer periods of time. Christmas comes faster and faster, too fast. You begin to even feel the rhythm of the year, just to take illustrations of that. Well, as our time sense expands, we approach the eternal perspective of God. We're never going to get there because we'll always exist in time, and we're not supposed to get there. But God sees the end from the beginning, and he sees all time at once. And as we mature and our time sense expands, we're maturing in terms of that. We're getting historical sense. So much for review. Now, point six, or sixth area of reflection today. History consists of the things that are new and that are relevant to our civilization which means that history gets rewritten every time there's a civilizational change. Because the things that went into our civilization are the things that we isolate out of time to say this is what's important. What do you consider to be history? Is history all the things that ever happened? In the 5th century A.D., the Qingchong dynasty was ruling in China, and the first king was Ping Pong. And Ping Pong got up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he washed his face, and then he went to the lavatory, and then he had breakfast brought to him, and then he put on his royal robes and went and sat in the palace, etc., etc. Is that history? No, it's chronicle. But it's not history because nothing happens. We select the things that are important and new 
and that lead to where we are because we see history in terms of cause and effect. And the more Christian we think, the more we see that. Apart from Christianity, there is no cultural change. Because after ping-pong is going to come yin-yang, and after yin-yang is going to come somebody else. And it's just going to be the same old thing over and over again until the Ching-Chong dynasty becomes the Bing-Bong dynasty. And then that's just going to go on for a couple of centuries, and then there's going to be another one and another one and another one. And it isn't ever going to change. That's right. It won't change. But when Christianity comes, things change. I don't know if any of you have ever read any of the novels by Chinua Achebe, but Achebe's book, Things Fall Apart, deals with the coming Christianity to Nigeria. And he shows how the tribal society among the Igbo people was just there. And things hadn't changed. As a matter of fact, things had changed, but there's no perception of change. Tribes kind of drift along in time, but things have been the same. Then Christianity comes and things fall apart. All of a sudden, the magic doesn't work anymore. The witch doctor can't figure anything out anymore. And the tribal elders allow the church to put itself on the demonic ground, and nothing happens to the church. The demons just don't do anything anymore. And then Achebe follows this up with a series of three other novels that follow the same basic families and groups of people, showing how, as soon as Christianity comes, this entire archaic pattern of life is just shattered. And then they have a choice. They can become Christians or they can become humanists. They can be decadent or they can be righteous. And unfortunately, as a Nigerian critical of Nigeria, he says they chose to become decadent. And Nigeria has been just a disaster ever since it became free from the British Empire. And it's still one today. But that Christianity shatters things and changes things. And Christianity issues in change because God is the God who makes all things new and the Holy Spirit comes to interface with human consciousness to force and stimulate new things. Therefore, history exists where Christianity takes in. Think of it this way. When Christianity comes, you move out of the world and into history. You move out of a static situation where nothing changes into a situation where you are growing and changing the world according to God's plan and where the Holy Spirit is energizing that. Now, you can fall back out of history into the world by sin. And so, in a sense, the opposition is whether you live in the world and your perception of everything is spatial and timeless or whether you're living in history and moving by faith. Apart from God, we settle into changeless and static cultures. So when God is active in history, new things come. That's why when Christianity comes in the Roman Empire, all of a sudden a whole bunch of changes take place. And when Christianity apostatizes in the 7th century, 8th century, with the icons, then in Western Europe, an anti-iconic form of Christianity, which we think of as medieval, early medievalism in the Carolingian period, begins to make cultural changes again. And theological development takes place. The doctrine of the atonement is worked out. And when that form of Christianity slides down at the late Middle Ages into timeless kind of no progress as possible, the Reformation comes along and brings about new stimulation and change, invention. 
and other things. That's what God does. That's history. So history consists of the things that are new. The things that are in your history book are all the different things that happen in history that lead up to where we are now. It's not just a record of everything that ever happened. And what are those new things? New things are things that God does. Another way of saying this is that history is the acts of God. As God acts to bring out of the human consciousness potential that wasn't brought out before. How much potential do you have? I mean, how far can you grow? Well, you have absolutely unlimited potential. See, a zillion years from now in heaven, we will still be growing and learning new things. We'll be learning new languages. Every language is different from every other language in terms of its nuances, and every language is a manifestation of the Word of God and so provides its own slant on who God is. And so every time you learn a new language, you have the potential of getting a new slant on who God is. And if there are eight or 9,000 languages in the world, if you knew them all, you'd have that many slants on who God is. Now, eternity consists of learning to appreciate God more and more. So in eternity, we're going to be learning one language after another, and it'll be easy and we'll enjoy it. <laughs> it won't be like learning languages now. And so forth. Now, how far can you go with this? You can go as far as God is, because the human consciousness develops in interaction with God, and God is infinite. There's always something new about God to learn if you're in heaven. There's always something new about God to learn to hate if you're in hell. I mean, there's progress in hell, too, because there's always something new about God to hate. Or there's retrogress in hell. <laughs> but So right now, you see, what makes things new is God's interface with us. And when you retire at the age of 65 or 70... And then all of a sudden you take up the cello, which you've never played a musical instrument before. That's because the potential was there all along, and now something is different. And people do this, you know. They get to be 50 or 60, and suddenly they write a novel, and then they write 10 novels. It's just because you never know what God is going to bring out of your consciousness that's new. Now, observation number seven. The phases and stages of biblical history... Reveal to us how God acts in history. Bible history shows God taking his daughter through various phases and stages of growth. And we can learn from this how God works in history and how God works in civilization. And when we begin to understand those patterns and sequences and what sorts of things God does, we can begin to understand what may happen next. In other words, the longer history goes, the better able we are to see into the future. Right now, church history has lasted 2,000 years, and we can look at that history and we can see analogies to Bible history, and we begin to be in a position to say this is probably the kind of thing that will happen next because we have enough information to go on maybe to make that prediction. Now, 30 or 40,000 years from now, there will be a whole lot more information to have in mind to make a guess about what may happen next. God reveals himself in this process of history. God progressively reveals himself as he works with us. And as Calvin says, as God reveals himself to us, we are revealed to ourselves. We know ourselves as we know God. The closer you go to God, the closer you get to God, the more unique your own sense of self becomes. See, as we submit to God, our personalities are not dampened down. As we submit to God, our personalities flower. 
knowing God brings us out more. It makes us more unique. So in history, humanity becomes progressively self-conscious to herself. We call this a growth in epistemological self-consciousness. We become self-conscious to ourselves. We become to understand what we are and what's going on with ourselves better. That's why Christianity has issued in the modern psychological era. Psychology is a byproduct of Christianity in the same way communism is a byproduct of Christianity. In other words, communism is a perversion of a Christian view of history. Psychology is a perversion of the cure of souls in the church. But as time goes along, more and more self-conscious reflection on different areas of life comes up. And right now we live in an age in which there's more and more self-conscious reflection on human psyche. Well, there didn't used to be that kind of self-conscious reflection. It's because of Christianity that the question even arises. It won't do to say, well, psychology is all wrong. Let's just go back to the days of Westminster Confession and preach to people and not have any psychology. As a matter of fact, the Puritans had loads of psychology. And not all of their psychology do we want. But psychological man is a stage of this unfolding self-consciousness, and now we have an excess in that area. But it's not something that is just right or wrong. This is right, this is wrong. It's more a matter of saying, okay, this has come about in our society at a certain time because Christianity has interacted with humanity in the West, and now this is the thing that's going on right now. Damn. I hope that's relatively clear in terms of what I'm trying to say. We become progressively aware. And that process in history, of course, leads to all kinds of reactions and actions. But it's going on. And we're in it now. Well, these phases and stages of Bible history is something that we dealt with in the conference last year, and I've got a little bit on it here, and we'll mention it. My only point is, looking at that core history in the Bible will show us a good deal about how God works in history and how God is taking the human race, humanity, through these stages. Now, let's reflect on point eight. Sin causes us to reject history. We said that at the beginning, but now let's think about it a little bit more. We are not content to be images of God who grow in time under God's interference. We don't want God interfering with us, and He's always doing so. We want to be God, and we want to understand everything, and we want to control everything. I don't know about you, but I would like to have control over everything in my life. Obviously. We think, at least, that it would be a lot nicer. But we don't, because God is constantly frustrating us. God is constantly bringing things into your life that frustrate you, that grieve you. You stub your toe. And God put the rock there. And people know that God did this. Everybody knows this. Listen, you know, you've got your atheist out there in the street, and he never thinks about God, he never goes to church, and his child gets hit by a car, and then he goes and he says, why did you do this to me, God? Because he knows. He's not grateful, he's not going to bow the knee, he's going to curse, but he knows, okay? Everybody knows. And they know that God is the one who's putting all these frustrations into our lives. All kinds of things are going on that we don't control. 
And when things happen to us that we don't control, we get depressed. We get angry and we want to hurt somebody. So it's God's fault. You know what that means? That things are always going on that we can't control? It means that we're victims. And we have a whole society today of victims. And they're all victims because they don't have faith. If you don't have faith, you're a victim. Just it's either faith or victim. Either you say, God knows what he's doing and I'm just going to let him do it, even though it's frustrating, or else you're a victim. Now, we have a whole society of victims because we have lost faith. We want not to be victims. We want to be in control. We want to see everything. We want to be at the end of history so that we can see everything, but we also want to have the power to predestinate history like God does. We don't want to live where we are right now, which means we don't want to live by the hearing of faith, but by sight and reason. And this is where it comes down to faith versus reason, hearing versus sight. If you can see everything laid out and you can rationally understand it, you're in control of it, at least up here. But if it doesn't make any sense to you, like the book of Ecclesiastes says, man cannot figure it out. Solomon says, though a man search night and day, he cannot figure it out. Now, what do you do if you can't figure it out? Well, you can get mad or you can relax and let God be in control, which is the point of Ecclesiastes. Remember, Ecclesiastes balances Proverbs. Proverbs says that the world makes sense, and if you do this, that'll happen. Ecclesiastes says the world doesn't make any sense, and no matter what you do, you'll never be able to predict what will happen next. Well, they're both written by Solomon, and you need to have them both. Now, Americans like Proverbs, and they don't like Ecclesiastes, but you've got to have them both. Both perspectives are true. The world can be comprehended, but it's, in the ultimate sense, incomprehensible. You can't understand it all. But we don't want that, see. We want to be like God. We want to be God, understand everything, and see everything. And because we can't, we get mad, and then there's violence. And that brings us to the question of reason, reason and history, because this is the opposition of Greece and the Bible, and is still with us in the church. There are three possible views of the relationship of faith and reason. One is that there's no relationship between the two. Reason leads you to understand the world one way, and it contradicts faith, and so... You've got reason over here and there's faith over there, and you can have them both, but they don't link up. Reason says the world is eternal, evolving, self-creating. And faith says God created the world out of nothing. Well, you can't reconcile those two things, and so there's no relationship between the two. That's one view. It's a common 20th century view. Existentialism holds that view. The second view, the classical view, is that reason leads to faith. You start with reason and you wind up with faith. Now, I'm not going to go into the problems with that because it's been addressed pretty well elsewhere. And I just want to talk about the third possibility, the third view, which is correct, and that is that reason is eschatological. Reason comes at the end. We have a place for reason. But you can only reason about things after they're over. That is, when you can look back over them. If you look at the Bible, God starts by speaking and he ends by seeing. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and then God sees it and evaluates it. God said, let the waters be gathered in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God saw 
and it was good. He speaks, it happens, and then he sees. Sees back over. Now, this is what happens all the time. You see and evaluate things when they're over with, and that's where reason comes in. You can look back over your life as it's gone before and evaluate it, but you can't look at the future that way. You can only move into the future by faith. And so how can you move into the future? Blind faith? Well, no. When you have this much information to go on, it's not blind. It's not blind. Now, if you don't know what's in here, that's your problem. We were talking the other day about why God would trick us by making the world look as if it's millions of years old. Well, God hadn't tricked us because he's told us it's not. So if you don't accept that, fine, that's your problem. But there's no trick (laughs) because he's told us. Now, if you don't know what's in Zephaniah, that's your problem. If you don't know what's in Nahum, sorry, that's not God's problem. Because he gave you this. This is a whole lot of information. So faith is not blind faith, but faith is something that comes by hearing. It comes with words and not sight. And so our model for understanding time and history and what God is doing is not a model that's derived from sight. It has to be a model that's derived from language. And since the second person of the Trinity is the Word of God, we ought to be linguistic scholars. The second commandment opposes sight and hearing. Read Deuteronomy 1 through 4. Over and over again, I have given you my commandments and my statutes and my ordinances and my laws which you heard me speak on Mount Sinai. So do and live by what you have heard. Never make any images and bow down to them because you saw nothing. But hearken to the statutes and the laws and the ordinances. I mean, it's wearying to read Deuteronomy 1 through 4. If you were to make a list of all the references to language communication in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, you'd probably have about four or five hundred mentionings of it. All of it is communication because it's speaking. Now, because that's how persons are revealed. Now, when you look at me, what do you know about me? What do you know about me by looking at me? You see, I have a beard. So you say, he's a hippie. Well, I might not be a hippie. Maybe I have a serious skin condition on my face, and I cover it up with the beard. Or you may say I'm fat. But maybe I have a glandular problem, and you're just being cruel to say that I'm fat. You don't know. Just by looking at me, you don't know anything about me. It's only when I talk that I reveal myself to you. Persons are revealed only through speech. That's why God doesn't show us anything to look at. If God showed up and we looked at Him, what would we know? Look, a shining light. That wouldn't do anything. God reveals Himself to us through words. And it's not just the words, but it's the tone of words, the musicality of words. Because if I was up here doing all of this in a real sarcastic tone of voice, I could say all these same things in this tone of voice, and it wouldn't mean the same thing, would it? No, you see. The musical quality is part of it. So God sings his word to us, and we sing the word back. I'm singing now. My voice is going up and down. Remember, we talked about that a little bit yesterday. We know about God because he speaks. Now, we want to play God. We want to see everything from the end. We want all pagan religions are therefore timeless and philosophical. The pagans orient themselves around powers of nature, which don't change. They orient themselves to the changeless heavens, 
They orient themselves to the ancestors who set things up. And the ancestors say, never change. And the ancestors have big eyes that look at you and make sure you never change. And on the totem pole, the eyes are big. And they're looking at you to make sure you never deviate from the true course of rectitude. Or, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have the big eyes, and they're making sure that you never depart from what was established at the seven councils and now can never be changed or thought about again. They stop history. The ancestors stop history. God is a God of not only the ancestors, but also the future. Now, there is one part of the Bible that looks kind of like that, (laughs) and that's Paul. But where does Paul come in the Bible? Well, we mentioned this yesterday. Paul comes at the end, after history is over. There are four phases in the Bible. There is the law. The law comes to initiate history. God comes and he says a whole bunch of things, and people don't like it, but after they've heard it, they can't forget about it. A lot of times we need to understand this in dealing with people. Sometimes you can't convert people the first time you talk to them, but you can say something and they won't be able to forget it, and you hope it works on them. Now, what God does is he gives the law, and Israel didn't really like it, but they couldn't get away from it. And so it began to work on them over the centuries. God initiates history through law, and it wasn't explained. You will not boil a kid in his own mother's milk. God says that three times. He never explains what it means. And it's not clear what it means. I have a whole paper on it out there. If you want to get confused, read my paper. I think I have something of a handle on what it meant. But God didn't tell them what it meant. He just told them to do it. Law initiates history. The second form of language is song or lyric, which affirms history. And it's what we do is we go out to obey. As we go out obeying, we sing. And we sing about how great the law is and about what God has done in the past. That's what the Psalms are about, and that's that second bunch of stuff in the Bible, the wisdom books, which is lyric. And the third form of language is prophecy, which is judgment and which ends history. The prophets come and end history, and the final prophet who comes and ends history is Jesus. The prophets start with Elijah and they end with Jesus. Jesus is the last in the prophetic time. We have the law time, the kingdom time, and the prophecy time. Priest, king, prophet. And Jesus is the last prophet, and he ends history. His judgment's coming on the old creation. Then comes Paul, and Paul can look back over all of that and make sense of it. And how does Paul argue? Well, from Abraham, from history, all the time. But what we do is all we do is Paul. We treat Paul as if he was writing timeless systematic theology, which is partly true, but partly not true. And then we write commentaries on Paul, we teach Paul, we preach Paul, and all our sermons are on Paul. And we start with Paul, which is not where we should start. It's because of our Greek influence that we magnify Paul over Moses. We need, at least in thinking about the Bible, to start where the Bible starts and end with Paul the systematician. Actually, history runs like this. Law gives birth to song, gives birth to prophecy, but prophecy also, because it judges the old one, initiates the new one, but you have two branches going out. You have a new priestly period that comes out of it as people obey the prophet, and then you have the possibility of reflection, your systematics, what Paul can do. Well, as history goes along, there can be more and more of that. 
The more history there is, the more there is for us to reflect over, and so the greater place there can be for true reason. But we're still at the very beginning of history. So those are some thoughts on reason and history, and I just want you to remember this. Reason is important, but it's eschatological. Rational reflection and putting it all together and understanding it is something that can only happen after it's over. Because as you're going through it, things are constantly changing under your feet and you have to walk by faith. Let's talk about history and biography. Because God is one and God is three, and the human race is also one and many. And the order of history is the order of biography. And what God does with us as individuals is a microcosm of what God does with the race as a whole and with cultures as a whole. I think that's pretty much an inescapable implication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, exactly how that works out is debatable. I'm going to give you my suggestion based on the five-point covenant model. Therefore, it's true. First of all, bear in mind what Ecclesiastes 8, 3, 1 to 8 says. It says that there is a time for this and a time for that, which means that we live in time. We live in a variety of circumstances. We live in a sequential life, not an eternal now. As a result, timing is important. Now, how do you acquire a sense of timing? Only through experience. You're not born with it. And I think most of us can remember back when we were teenagers and maybe even later, occasions in which we just did the wrong thing at the wrong time. What we did wasn't wrong, measured by moral law, but it wasn't very sensitive. You know, Paul says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. But have you ever known somebody going through a tragedy and somebody just tries to cheer them up? Well, that's not what Paul says to do, and yet sometimes we do that. That's bad timing. Now, becoming sensitive to timing is something that happens over time in our own development, and we'll discuss that in a minute. But I wanted to make the point now. The Bible emphasizes that there is a right time for things and that not everything is valid at every time. Luke 14, 7-11, Jesus tells the parable about going to the feast and taking the lowest seat. Don't take the high seat, take the low seat, and when the time is right, the Master will invite you to come up. There's a time in life for everything. And a lot of times we don't think about this. Christianity, therefore, has to have a doctrine of timing, while paganism, especially philosophical paganism, ignores time. Everything is the same. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm not going to go to any movie that I wouldn't want my kids to see? Well, why? We're not kids. What's appropriate for adults is not the same thing as appropriate for kids. Whether you go to movies or not, it's not the question. The point is, that argument's not any good. Now, there are five stages of education that we go through when we are children, and these fall out into five stages of life. And I want briefly to cover these. They're based partly on Dorothy Sayers. The first stage that we go through as God develops us as individuals when we're children is nurture. Small children are taught the boundaries of life by means of love. That's what you learn when you are a baby, you learn boundaries. And you learn boundaries by being in a crib with a wall around it, by being swaddled up in swaddling clothes, by being held in your mother's arm. And it is actually the enfolding arms of love that teach boundaries. Later on, boundaries are reinforced by threats. You cross this boundary and you get spanked. 
The first form of boundary teaching is actually love. And sort of the climax of this process of education is the child is taught the meaning of the word no. What's the first word your child learns? No. And then you flick their wrist or whatever. No plus pain. <laughs> children have to learn no. And no means boundaries. If children don't learn no, they are going to be in trouble. And we'll reflect on this more in a minute. The second stage of life is the storytelling stage. When kids are three or four or five years old, storytelling. Stories teach culture and history. They communicate the culture and history from the past, and they provide the context in which we live. That's what stories do. And that's why stories are used with small children after they have been taught boundaries. Then comes the grammar period. I know most of you have read Dorothy Sayers or heard this before. Grammar is when you learn facts and laws, say grades two to five, facts and foundation. The logic phase, when you start to argument, Kids begin to challenge things, say grades 6 through 10, argument, and finally the rhetorical stage of education where you move into artistic expression of the things that you have learned, say grades 11 to, let's say, the age of 20. You are learning these things the first time. Now, that, of course, if you know the, the five-point covenant model, you can see that. The initiation the transition, and then the laws, the sanctions or arguments, and then finally the passing into the future through rhetoric, artistically enhancing things so that you can communicate it. Now, these are also five overlapping stages of life, and that's what I really want to do with this for a few minutes. Our whole life is this way. And God lays out the idea that there are stages in life and passages like Leviticus 27 where we're told that if people want to be valued in terms of the sanctuary, a child from one month to five years is evaluated so much, from five years to 20, from 20 to 60, and 60 and above. And we also find in the rules for the priests at the age of 25, a man could start being a Levite, and then at 30, he began to really serve as a Levite or a priest. At the age of 50, he retired from that and became some type of an elder. So we've got a whole series of year structures here that indicate stages of life. And I'm not going to try to link what I'm about to say with those particular years, but rather get you to think about this more generally. Five overlapping stages of life. The first is childhood, which according to the Bible lasts until you're 20 years old. And so in a larger sense, all of childhood is concerned with boundaries because you're still in the home and you're under your mom and dad. And they're telling you you've got to be in at 10 o'clock. They're establishing boundaries, boundaries external to you. You're not setting up your own boundaries. Hopefully, when you get out on your own, you have enough inside yourself to set your own boundaries. But still, as long as you are in the home until you're, say, 20 years old, you are in the nurture and boundaries phase, and you're still being told no by your parents and guardians. The next phase is the learning phase or learner phase, which I would say runs from about 10 to 30. This is the grammar phase where you are learning. Say around 10 years of age, while you're still in the home and still under boundaries, you also start to learn a lot. But from 20 to 30, you're also learning. What you're learning is your trade, your calling. You're still a learner. 
And you don't find Joseph before Pharaoh till he's 30. David doesn't become king till he's 30. The priests and Levites can't take up their work till they're 30, and Jesus didn't start teaching till he was 30. Now, that means something in an age in which people want to jump the gun on this. And people want to be ordained to the ministry when they're 25. There's something to be said about this. Not even Jesus started till he was 30. We're supposed to be teaching deacons or in some type of learning phase before that time. Then comes the warrior phase of life, which I would say runs from 20 to 50. Say from 20 to 30, you're learning war, and from 30 to 50, you're a warrior. Now, each of us has his own warfare. Your warfare may be in agriculture. Somebody else's may be dealing with people. My warfare is with this text. I'm wrestling with this. Some people are wrestling actually in the military. But you have some calling in life that you are wrestling with in the warrior stage of life. The debate phase. And this is priestly. The word priest means special servant. And as a warrior, you are a special servant wrestling with challenges in your calling. The warrior phase of life, I said, runs from 20 to 50, is followed by the ruler phase, which is kingly. After you serve for a while, you become a king, and that means you're given responsibilities in your calling. It's thrust upon you. It's bestowed on you. You've been doing a good job as a warrior, as a worker, as a wrestler, in whatever you're doing, and other people say, we want you to take charge of this operation to some degree. So you move into a more kingly phase, and I would put that between the ages of 30 and 60, but more toward the end of it. David becomes a king when he's 30. He was a warrior before that time. So this is the model. The model in the Bible is war. We can apply it to any calling in life. David is a warrior. He becomes a king at 30. But it's more likely that it will be a little bit later in life before we get responsibilities. But it grows out of this. And, of course, you are passing judgments then. Finally comes the counselor phase. From the age of 50 to 120. And that's rhetoric and it's prophetic. The counselor is an elder. David is king. Hearken to the elders. From the ages of 50 to 60, I would say, is early eldership. Because it's only after 60 that the person is valued differently. And that's what the Bible means by elder. It doesn't mean Presbyterian elder. Presbyterians believe in transubstantiation. If you put hands on somebody, you can convert somebody that's 25 into an old man. But that's not true. You can make him an overseer to where he has to do the work of an elder, but you can't make him old. David hearkened to the elders. And elders, using their rhetoric, pass on the kingdom to the next generation. Now, what is an elder? An elder is somebody who has learned to modulate his voice as a result of the experiences of his life. Life is a course of instruction designed to make our voices musical and effective. Life is a course of instruction designed to make our voices musical and effective. The elder has matured to become a singer. God's purpose is to create singers in this broad sense of singing. 
And so, you know, your 30-year-old is in the pulpit, and he's shouting and yelling and pounding on the pulpit, but the old guy just gets up there, and he just kind of talks to everybody and makes you feel like dirt because he's so effective in the way he can communicate. As we get older, all the experiences we have been through, our voices are better. You remember the New Left days? And they would hand these 19- and 20-year-olds on TV talking about what they were going to do and what their voices sounded like. So abrasive. How do teenage voices sound when their voice first cracks anyway? Not all that pleasant. That's why they should be quiet and not talk. I'm only exaggerating there, of course, but it is true that our voices become more modulated from experience. And so our rhetoric is enhanced. And we learn how to couch things in such a way that the next generation is more likely to hear it. That only comes after being a warrior. And you acquire patience. How does God bring this about now? We are moving through these phases. God has this program to make us grow and mature. I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. The serpent comes to Eve and says, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it says Eve's good. Now, that means her eyes were already open. And obviously, Eve knew right from wrong, so she already had knowledge of good and evil. And it says in the beginning, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, so she was already like God. So Adam and Eve are already like God, and serpent comes and says, you can become like God. Their eyes were already open. They could see the fruit, and the serpent comes and says, your eyes will be opened. They already knew right from wrong because God had told them, and he says, you'll get knowledge of good and evil. After they eat the fruit, God says, well, behold, the man has become like one of us. It says after they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. Wait a minute. And God says they have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Well, they were already like God. So the Bible is full of contradictions, and so let's all go home. No, what it is is history. There is the open eye in one sense, and then there's the open eye in a more developed historical sense. The opening of the eyes in the second and broader sense is the ability to pass judgments, which is eschatological. God saw and it was good. That comes at the end. Adam and Eve couldn't do that because they were brand new. They didn't have any experience. Being like God, in the more mature sense, is to be an Elohim, a judge. The word God, or Elohim, is used in the Bible to refer to mature, older men who were judges. In fact, it refers to older people in general. And this is called, in the early church, it was called the doctrine of deification. That is, a mature Christian has become more like God. Now, we don't like that language because we've associated it with Mormonism and paganism and the like. But what happens when a person becomes old? He gets white hair, glory hair. White hair is glory hair. Because God shows up, God has white hair. He becomes an elder. He becomes a judge. He becomes more like God, able to pass judgment. And finally, the phrase, knowing good and evil in this second sense, means the right to pass judgment. And you only learn that through experience, which Adam and Eve didn't have. They knew right from wrong morally, but they did not have any judicial sense. And if you study down this phrase, knowledge of good and evil, you'll find this is what it means. 
David is said to have knowledge of good and evil because he's a king. In Deuteronomy it says, small children do not yet have knowledge of good and evil. Barzillai says, I'm old and senile and I just don't have knowledge of good and evil anymore. Solomon is said, when he passes judgments, to have knowledge of good and evil. So knowledge of good and evil doesn't mean knowing right from wrong. It means, in the Bible, maturing to the point where you're an elder and you have the right to pass these judgments. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have this. And they were supposed to learn something that would enable them to have it. And they didn't learn it. Instead, they seized it. They seized it, the right to pass judgments. And so they ruined their lives and ours. What God had intended for them is something else. God told Adam and Eve, I have made every tree for you to eat. It shall be food for you. So they know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil eventually will be for them. But not yet. It is a good thing that they can't have yet. And that is how maturation is accomplished. Section 12. It is accomplished by testing that leads to patience. Hebrews 5.11-14 says this, Concerning this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need again for someone to teach you the foundational principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who takes only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, because he is obeyed. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Out of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, it takes time to get to the point where you are mature and you have knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't take philosophy. Now, what do we think? We think you can go to university for four years and seminary for three years and learn a bunch of information and come out and be ordained because now you have what you need. No, no. What you have then is just information and philosophy. What you need is years of practice of the warrior stage to where your senses are trained to discern good and evil. And that's why the law was given. This is my beef with the strict form of theonomy, you see. The law is not given primarily as legislation for Israel. Because if it was, it wouldn't have all these weird things in it. This is what happened when Gary and I began to write commentaries on Exodus and Leviticus. We found that there's strange things in here that don't look like they belong in a law code. Like chopping off a woman's hand if she interferes in a fight between two men. How often is that going to happen? <laughs> this is not your everyday occurrence. So why does God spend time with it? Or fourfold restitution for one animal and fivefold for the next. The reason is, the law is given more than that as something to study and study and study and study and study and study and study while you're going through the warrior phase until your whole consciousness is changed and you can deal with all kinds of things that are not explicitly written down here because you have acquired the sense of wisdom through many years of interaction with the law, mixing it with experience in life. Hebrews 6, 12-15 says this, Don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, 
since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God makes this promise to Abraham, and it's a good thing. And the good thing is, you'll have sons. And Abraham waited a long time. And finally, his wife came to him and said, Well, it doesn't look like I'm going to have any kids. How about this cute young thing over here? And so, you know, the Bible tells us that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair. There in Genesis 6. And they married them. They married the cute pagan girls instead of the ugly Christian girls. Not exactly what it means, but you can remember it that way. Unfortunately, I'm sure that the Christian girls were just as nice, but that's what their perverted hearts caused them to see things that way. And so Abram doesn't resist a whole long time to visit Hagar, but that isn't right. He's jumped the gun. He has to wait longer. Now, it's a good thing. Now, you learn patience when you are told you can't have something that's good. You don't learn patience when you're told you can't have something that's bad. Thou shalt not commit murder. God is telling you you can't do something that's bad. You don't get patience from that. Because you don't think, someday I'll get to commit murder. But not now. But where you get patience is when you're told you can't have sex until you're married. Mom, Dad, can I take the car and drive to California? No. Why not? And you're only 17. Well, can I stay out until 3 a.m.? No. Can I have a sip of that whiskey? No. Can I have a cigar? No. Can I go to this movie? No. Can I? No. Can No. No. Can I have sex? No. Not until you're married. Hey, sex is great. In California, wow, man. We all want to drive to California down Route 66. But you can't do it yet. California's heaven, man. And there's nothing wrong with a little sip of whiskey, especially if you're a Presbyterian and you're so hung up and uptight all the time, you need a little whiskey to relax. I mean, if you're charismatic, you don't need this stuff. But, I mean, us Presbyterians, you want to know why we have wine in communion. <laughs> Something's got to loosen us up. These are all good things. But you can't have them until you're mature enough. And if your children know all along that know until you're ready, you learn patience. And that's exactly what God did with Adam and Eve. He said, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is probably the best tree in the garden. But you can't have it yet. You can have the tree of life. But you can't have the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet. But they wouldn't wait. Now, Abraham is really the other side of it. Abraham makes his one mistake. But basically, he waits. Patience is a virtue that cannot be bestowed. It has to be learned through time. Now, I want to pull some things together. History is about learning patience, and patience gives you the broad time sense. Everything we've been saying so far comes down to this. History is about learning patience, and patience gives you this large time sense. And it only happens through a lifetime course of instruction and frustration. If God didn't frustrate us all the time, we wouldn't learn patience. If it was easy, we wouldn't learn patience, and patience is what we have to learn. God can build into us a sense of right and wrong. He gave Adam and Eve all the virtues, but you can't be given patience. It has to be worked in. And so response to the word no is what develops historical perspective. 
And you look at people who don't have patience, and they can't think in any long term at all. They are present-oriented. Present orientation and impatience is one thing. Patience and long orientation is the other. So the issue is no versus now. And, of course, we have a whole generation of kids who have not been raised on no. They've been raised on now. The evil of demand feeding. No, there's nothing wrong with demand feeding. But in more general ways. You see, demand feeding is in that nurture phase, the first year when you hold them all the time, I think demand feeding is fine. I'm for it, but at least in general, not as an absolute. But as soon as children get to be a little bit older, I mean, it's not really my problem, is it? So I can't say a whole lot about it. But at some point, you have to learn no, be structured. Now, Abraham is an example. Abraham is called by God to leave the old world and to look for a city. And where is that city? The city is a thousand years away. Now, how can you look for something that's a thousand years away unless you have some time sense? Abram is already 75 when this happens. The city is Solomon and David's Jerusalem, the one where Melchizedek comes from. He's shown what city it is when Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine. Not only that, but Abraham has to see this whole future through one son. His great-granddaddy Peleg was one, and his brother Joktan had 13 sons who all got involved in the Tower of Babel. Not in Abram's line. Abram's brother Nahor has 12 sons. Abram only has one. Ishmael goes off. Ishmael has 12 sons. Isaac just has a couple. And one of them's bad. Not only that, but Abraham is forced to see all the future through Isaac, and Isaac is in sin. Rebecca calls Abraham up on the phone and says, Papa, Isaac won't give it to Jacob. You know as well as I do, God said Jacob was supposed to have it. And Abram says, yeah, from what I've seen when you all have come to visit, Jacob seems like the right one. Esau <laughs> Esau reminds me of every bad guy I've ever read about. He reminds me of, of Nimrod. Gosh, he reminds me of Lamech marrying two wives. He reminds me of Cain. Everybody bad in the Bible I'm reminded of when I look at him. I think that Jacob ought to get it too. Well, Isaac won't give it to him. Well, put Isaac on the line. So Abraham thought to Isaac and says, son... You know, God said, Jacob, oh, no, you don't know him like I do. I don't think that's really true. If you really knew Esau the way I did, you'd know that he's the one who ought to inherit. Well, finally, Abraham dies, and that's how it is. You talk about frustration. Abraham doesn't get to see any of the stuff that he's promised, just about. Not only that, but God frustrates him in other ways as well. He calls him Abram. Now, you don't call a little baby mighty father. So Abram probably wasn't his name to start with. But God calls him Abram, mighty father. How many sons do you have? None. Well, this goes on year after year after year. Finally, when Abram is 99, God changes his name to Abraham, father of a multitude. He's got one son. What's your name, Abraham? Oh, father of a multitude. How many kids do your wife have? Well, she doesn't have any. But her servant girl had one. But I'm told I can't keep him. Can you imagine this? All of his friends are laughing at him behind his back. God makes him carry this stuff for 175 years. Now, folks, if we rebel against these kinds of frustrations, we won't develop. If we submit to them, we will develop. We grow in patience and wisdom. God frustrates us in order to develop this long time sense, and Abraham is the great example of faith for this reason. Abraham gets the long time since. Out of all the years of frustration, 
God says you're going to have a son, and a mighty nation is going to come out of you. Year after year, it never happens. You know, Sarah goes through the change of life, and then it's obviously not going to happen. You stop and think about it. Think about it on the day-to-day, week-after-week, month-after-month, year-after-year basis. What's this working into Abraham? Well, just what we don't really want. I mean, who likes being constantly frustrated in life? Suppose everything you try to do, everything, God frustrated. With Abraham, it was that way. Almost everything you try to do, God frustrated. You and I just get a little frustration. It's unpleasant, but it's the only way we mature in God-likeness. And history in large is that way. Now, that brings me to one last point, and then we are done, believe it or not. Mirabile dictu. And that is, when we have matured in our God-like abilities, we can do two things that we can't do to start with. And this is what God's goal is for us and in a larger way for humanity as a whole, and this is what time and patience do. First thing is that we mature to the point where we can utter covenant-initiating words that create new history. And you have to be at that rhetoric phase of life to do this well. It's not to say that you can't have anything to say before that time, but the climax of it. You have to, as a result of your experience, be able to sense what's needed in your own calling, wherever it is, your own family, whatever it is, or if you have a larger position in life, a larger sense of what's going on, what the future needs, And then you can speak covenant-initiating words that create a new future. Now, that's what God does in the beginning. God gives us this part of the Bible, this first part, which consists of covenant-initiating words that create everything else. Everything flows out of the law. Everything. Jesus keeps the law. Paul reflects on the law. The law in the fullest understanding of it, all those strange things in here that reveal the parts that we don't quite understand how it fits together because we're still very ignorant. But this initiates history. Now, what God wants is for us to grow up to where we can do that. And that's what Augustine did with the city of God. The city of God, which is just a letter, a kind of a long letter, wound up being the creation of a civilization. Calvin's Institutes created several civilizations. And in lesser ways, other things do too. And they're perverse examples. Works of Marx. Each of us wants to get to that point to where we have enough sense, and this isn't entirely rational, but it's a matter of sensing as well, we can utter covenant-initiating words that create new history. Second of all, we mature in God-likeness to where we can utter words of judgment that end or close history. That is, you can pass judgments. You become an elder and you have knowledge of good and evil. And one man beats up another man and it comes before you and you pass judgment and you close that little piece of history because you have passed a judgment. And in a larger way, you become able to do that. Now, these are really two sides of one coin. If you end history at one point, you start the next phase of history. But we don't acquire the ability to do that just by studying the Bible. You don't acquire it by going to seminary. You acquire the sense and the ability to do that and I'm not old enough to do that in any real way, you acquire the sense and the ability to do that by being on the battlefield for 30 years with this constantly in front of you. 
at the end of it, when you're in your 50s and 60s, you can really begin to have a sense of saying what needs to be said. And all the things you've said before, which also needed to be said, aren't quite as good. That's assuming that you don't shortchange this process somewhere along the line. And an awful lot of people do. Instead of acquiring patience over the years, they just become compromisers. Compromise looks like patience, but it's really the opposite of patience. Or they get to be in their 50s and 60s, and they've never learned this at all, and so they don't have a whole lot of backlog to work with to mix with their experiences to get wisdom. But the ideal is to mature. That's what time and history are about. They're this course in patience. They're this course in rhetoric to get us to this point, to make us elders. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.